The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest, um, what's your name again? Oh, yeah, yeah, Paul Mitchell. The Dow Sassoon. The, <laughs> the uh, famous poll numbers cruncher, strategist, data expert. It's uh, loan owner. <laughs> founder of Meridian Partners, Vice President of Political Data, Inc., and uh, founder of the CA120 column that we run whenever we get a chance. And Paul's going to talk to us a little bit today about the uh, presidential race, about what's going on in California, about electability. Um, what exactly do you mean when you talk about electability? What is that? Well, what's funny is electability is mostly a perception, but it's a perception that has become much, much, much more important in people's minds as they're thinking about this presidential race. Um, you know, and it's, I think, exacerbated kind of by our media culture, too, that uh, every yeah. every news program you have is people talking heads and prognosticating and, and being political consultants, and I think it's kind of fallen onto voters. But what I essentially mean by electability is um, voters might have in their mind, my ideal candidate is one who will fight for bike lanes, nuclear-free zone, save the whales, and all this good stuff. They have all these niche issues, all these things are their highest priorities, but then they look and they're like, well, this candidate that might actually be the best fit for me, I don't think somebody in the Midwest would vote for that person. I don't think that, you know, a white, blue-collar worker would vote for this person, and they feel so kind of... um, you know, scared based on what happened in 2016, they place such a high priority on who can beat Trump and who can win oh, okay. that they kind of, they make their own personal choice kind of secondary to this, well, I'm better off voting, for casting my ballot for this other candidate because well, I think they can actually and this win is in the end. Long tradition go back all the way to the 1972 race. Yeah. Which I mean, was like... You know, according to conventional wisdom, far too left. The candidate was far too left and then got slaughtered against Richard Nixon. Yeah, I mean, that also speaks to there's two different versions of what people think is electable, too. So the whole point of the article I wrote was that, like, everybody puts their little political, you know, uh, prognosticator hat on. And they say, well, I'm going to put my choice of, like, the vegan candidate who's the nuclear activist, nuclear free activist, I'm going to put that, park that aside because I really think that this this candidate who's, you know, like Joe Biden is the one that I would think of as kind of the archetype of that right now in the presidential field. I'm going to support Joe Biden because I think he can win. And that's more important than who I really think. So more is of a most, commitment to strategic voting. It's like strategic of, voting, you know? yeah. And then, but then you also have the other side where you might have somebody who says, well, I really like Joe Biden, but I don't think that the... I've heard that the African-American female vote is so critical to winning an election. And I know that we have this growing Latino population. And I know that turnout among young people is what might make the difference in the presidential general election. So I don't think that I'm going to support anybody who's not a woman or a person of color, because without that, we're never going to win in November. Of 2020. So sort of the bank shop strategic voting. The opposite strategic voting. So what happens is like you have some strategic voting people who will 
believe in this concept of you get somebody in the middle who least offends the other party and can maybe get some votes from the other party. And that's the ideal candidate that you need to strategically vote for. And then you get somebody else who, with the same kind of mindset of like, I'm going to vote strategically, has a completely different viewpoint. They think the person who can win is the person who can turn out the infrequent voters and can get people excited and energized, just like in the way that Trump did, essentially. That was essentially Trump's strategy. Although, Trump's strategy was a although have a strong right, base. Didn't Trump actually get less votes? He did, than but Mitt he won Romney the electoral. Did? Oh, yeah. I mean, but he did a he did a campaign that really focused on motivated turnout for racists. Well, um, or people who were like very focused on pro life and the Supreme Court and other things that were willing to kind of park their own concerns about his personal behavior. Um, and put instead, like you know, their their concerns about and we actually life or saw that we did the you spoke at our uh, post mortem election post mortem, which uh-huh. was two days after the election, and there was a pretty good turnout in the audience, and people were asking questions, and I remember that there was one person who was absolutely horrified that Trump had been elected, and was saying, I can't imagine where are these people that voted for Trump, and who are these stupid people, and she was really very viscerally angry, mm-hmm. and she posed this question, no one had an answer, and the hand went up two seats away from her, which made it a tiny bit awkward, and the woman stood up and said, I voted for Trump. I don't like him, I don't believe in him, but I'm pro-life, so was I going to vote for Hillary Clinton? No, I was not, so I voted for Trump. And it was really interesting. So in that, you know, if you were triangulating as a, as a conservative and that's your most important thing, you vote for Trump. Yeah. So. so, I mean, I think that the the point of the article to me was, and this also came from my own personal experience, like my my in-laws who are not extremely politically engaged, Mm -hmm. they both, like I talked to them about what's happening in the presidential race. It's like talking to somebody debating the aspects of campaign strategy on CNN. And I want to say to voters and to the public, vote for who you like. Vote for who you want to have win. Vote with your, your own values. Don't play the game of like, I'm a political consultant and who should I vote for strategically in order to win? Because the biggest fallacy about that is that you've got a segment of the electorate saying, I have to vote strategically, so they vote for the straight white old guy. And then you've got another part of the electorate that says, I want to vote strategically, so I'm going to not vote my choice. I'm going to vote for the person of color or the younger candidate or the woman. And in the end, they just kind of like cancel each other out. Um, and in the end, it also kind of gets away from what the idea of, I believe, kind of voting in a democracy should be. How do you reach them? How do you reach those voters? And if you're a campaign strategist, is it through TV advertising? Is well, it I mean, social media? You know, the, the, what ends up happening, I think, is that if electability is going to be at the top in terms of a voter concern, all these campaigns have to talk about how they're electable. Mm-hmm. So you see Pete Buttigieg talking about, I'm electable because I can speak to millennials and concerns of millennials, mm-hmm. the fastest growing portion of the electorate, I can get them to turn out. You see, uh, you know, Cory Booker or Kamala Harris talking about being able to be electable mm-hmm. and turn out African-American voters. You see Julian Castro talking about being able to waken this sleeping giant of Latino population. So you're seeing a lot of campaigns trying to forge the electability argument, but to fit their, the, the way that they view their campaign. There's also this potential big flaw for Biden with the electability argument that we explore in the article that essentially is that he's propping up this idea of I'm electable. And that's, you know, basically 90% of his messaging right now is electability mm-hmm. in Obama. But 
if and when he loses something, even if it's a straw poll or a or a primary in a tiny little state in Iowa or something like that, um, or a caucus in Iowa, then it could really crater his campaign if he hasn't built up messages aside from the electability. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also an interesting challenge in that. Um, it seems but, like every day or every other day we're seeing Biden making not so much a gaffe, but making mistakes in sort of these high-profile events, or at least events where people are covering him, awarding him a medal, for example, and not not describing the medal accurately, not describing the location accurately, even getting uh, making mistakes on some very basic information you think he would have. And that, that's not an isolated incident. Apparently, apparently it's happened before. So the question is, as he gets more attention to that problem, how does that hurt his chances? seems to me it has to hurt his numbers. Well, um, you know, it's definitely not his core message that I'm the sharpest, you know, version of Joe Biden you've ever seen. Like at the end of the debate where he said, email me at Joe Biden 3030 or whatever it was. And that was actually the the text message number for his campaign. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, that's going to be a challenge for him. Um, but I think a lot of voters still see him and say, well, you know, yeah. uh, his still numbers can still be stay up. His numbers have been really strong. Um, and, and I think you were saying people think that maybe African-Americans wouldn't vote for him. My memory is that he him. actually has the best support as, by a significant margin. Absolutely. Um, he does great among African-Americans. In our polling, the, the Capital Weekly mm-hmm. polling, he does great among African-Americans and Latinos. When you talk about favorables in and unfavorables, basically, do you see voters... You know, totaling up both sides. This is what's favorable. This is what's not. And I'm well, making so it's, my decision. Yeah. So it's interesting. The favorable, unfavorables. We're going to be working on a on a way for people who are looking at the series and looking at the polling to dive into and look at how people's favorables have been changing over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people uh, have really high favorables and almost no unfavorables, like a Pete Buttigieg, mm-hmm. um, and uh, others have some significant unfavorables, like uh, a Joe Biden, as an example, has more significant unfavorables. Um, so we're going to look at how these favorables have been changing over time over the course of the campaign. And honestly, I believe that the favorables, August, the before the, you know, in the in the non-election year, so mm-hmm. uh, a long way out from the first votes, favorables are actually probably more telling than the base, you know, support mm-hmm. numbers. It doesn't, Oh, I think the last thing I saw, Warren has very good favorable. Oh, yeah. She, um, I think if you combine people's first choices, second choices, something like that, she comes up at the top. Yeah. Something along those lines. So, um, yeah, she's probably got pretty good favorables. She's the second choice of all the Bernie voters. I mean, if you look at the mm-hmm. Bernie voters, she's number one as a second choice. But Kamala in California is a second choice of basically every other candidate. Um, even Sanders. Sanders... Uh, people who are Sanders voters, Elizabeth Warren's up there as a second choice, but I think in the last version, Kamala Harris was the second choice for Sanders voters. That's in California. In California, yeah. Um, but right now, the favorable, unfavorable information is really important because, like as an example, let's say people start to believe that any of these Democratic candidates could beat Trump, and so you don't have to worry about electability as much. Um, and Biden starts to lose that vote. You know, where is it going to go? It's going to go to candidates that... A lot of the polls have said that. Favorably. Uh, of the top... However you define the top candidates, but uh, Biden, Sanders, Harris, Warren, uh, and, and Buttigieg I think... And Buttigieg, yeah. I think, 
they've they all defeat Trump. And this is a national poll, a national, uh, mm-hmm. you know, hey, nationally Clinton election. defeated Trump. Yeah, yeah. See what so that that, got exactly. Us. So, yeah. um, but it's interesting that all of them have that. You know, they have that those positive vibes. It seems to me, if you're a Democratic voter, it's almost like you have a buffet and you can choose one. In reality, that's not that's not true. Well, so what's funny is Tim said it twice. Um, you know, we hearken back to the 2016, and it's kind of like uh, you know, and the way Tim's bringing it up and the way he's kind of reacting to a lot of this, it's like the the kid who touched the stove. And, you know, we've been out of the kitchen for a year and a half and you go back in and there's that goddamn stove again. And you're like, uh, like you you want to say, hey, this is just a normal presidential election. I can afford to vote like my first time I ever voted, vote for Jesse Jackson. Second time mm-hmm. I voted, voted for Jerry Brown. And I wasn't voting based on electability. I was voting based on who I wanted to. Yeah, but sure. if Donald Trump had been the the presidential, you know, had been president in 19. 19- 88 or 1992 or whatever uh hell i might have uh been a little bit more you know skeptical and strategic and said well i can't afford to vote for the candidate that i just really 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 am passionate about because look what happened last time and so that look what happened last time is essentially the fuel for that electability argument because You know, if we hadn't had this election where all the pollsters said that Hillary Clinton was going to win, or we all knew that Hillary Clinton was going to win, or we never thought that this guy Trump, you know, could ever be really president, like, we almost felt like after the Republicans nominated in the primary that they just were kind of like signing a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then he wins. Then we come into this election cycle basically questioning everything we know mm-hmm. and, and not being willing to take any risk. Like what I know, it's that's the that's the interesting thing about the cycle. You know, following social media, so on Twitter and on Facebook, I'll see very bitter fights about the the can the primary candidates in the Democratic primary, and then at some point, a significant number of the people that are in this that are bitterly opposed on who, they're like, but of course I'll vote for whoever the oh yeah candidate is. I mean, and that last time, twenty sixteen, was absolutely not the case. Where I saw people who were, you know firmly opposed to Sanders, firmly opposed to Clinton, and they held on to that bitterly till the very, very end. And I'm seeing a lot less of that. People are very much like, what's a vote blue, no matter who. So I really see that, I think, is going to shape things at the end as well. I just don't, maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe, you know, Jill Stein will pull just as many votes as she did, but I just don't think so. So what's interesting about 2016 is that um, the sense almost universally that Hillary Clinton was going to win I think had two big impacts on the race one is it allowed a lot of voters who were not enthusiastic to either stay home or vote for Gary Johnson or just skip it you know and that was I mean this is a presidential race that was basically decided by 80,000 votes and so that was probably enough just in that that sense of you know it's a foregone conclusion why are we even worrying about it you know that allowed a lot of people to stay home the other thing that was really interesting is about 2016 I really believe that a lot of those competitive congressional races in California that were flipped in 18 a couple of them could have been flipped in 16 like Applegate over ISA had people properly registered the likelihood of Trump being elected president because at the time, the undercurrent was, well, shit, we're going to have Hillary Clinton be president with all this email controversy and James Comey and all this stuff. We have to vote for Republicans for Congress 
Like, it's more important that for us to plug our nose and vote for Republicans for Congress because Hillary's going to win the presidency. And those voters, there's probably enough of those voters and enough motivation based on that for Republicans to hold on to more seats than they probably would have in 2016. In a, in a county, in Orange County, where, you know, the Hillary won, but all the Republican candidates held those congressional seats, yeah. speaks to the idea of, like, ticket splitting um, and the idea that very likely the, the I, this, this sense of, um, you know, Hillary Clinton was predestined to win uh, meant that they had to vote for Republicans for congressional races just to make sure that she didn't have both Congress and, yeah. and the White House. Do, do you think the Dems have a, have a uh, strong lock on the seats that flipped last time that they got? Are they going to keep them as we go into 2020? Or? I would guess so. Um, so we've started doing a little bit of looking at the coming primary electorate and the general election electorate in 2020 as well. And um, what we're seeing is an electorate that should be more Democratic than before, than 2018. Is that across the border in California? Uh, across, in California. We're only looking in California. So the um, it's you know, basically always true that a presidential race is going to be more Democratic than the prior gubernatorial because hmm. gubernatorials are generally lower turnout, more Republican, okay. and presidentials are more Democratic. Some people have said, well, hey, 2018 was so crazy Democratic for a gubernatorial, and it was, that, you know, is 2020 going to be the same as 2018? I know we talked roughly? a little bit earlier about things that might happen, the imponderables here. What happens yeah. if... Uh, the tax issue keeps Trump off the ballot. We don't know where that's going to play out. But. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's another thing. So we're talking uh-huh. about, like, the 2020 primary in general are already going to be more Democratic <clears throat> than expected. The 2020 primary could be crazy Democratic if Trump is kept off the ballot, um, which I think that they have to figure this out at the Secretary of State's office by, like, December 6th or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are multiple lawsuits right now about whether or not they can be kept off, he can be kept off the ballot. Not just him, but any other presidential sure. candidates that mm-hmm. don't release their taxes. Um, and uh, so we could have a really asymmetric mm-hmm. primary election in terms of turnout. And what I mean by that is that there's this imbalance between the motivations for Democrats to turn out to elect one of these Democratic candidates that are on all the debates and are getting all the mail and seeing all the TV ads and all this attention on the Democratic candidates. So like Democrats or independents who pull that Democratic ballot have a huge motivation to turn out. And Republicans have less of a motivation because it's like a foregone conclusion that Trump's going to win the primary anyway, whether they like Trump or not. And if Trump is kept off the ballot, you'd have even less motivation for Republicans to vote because they're like, hey, I'm kind of pissed that they took Trump off the ballot. I'm not even going to vote at all. Like a protest, not vote. Those kind of things could have real impacts on the outcome of not just the presidential primary, yeah. but uh, like the congressional down election. ticket. Like yeah. the, who's, the vote totals for the Democratic and Republican candidates in the primaries. In the congressional races, it's probably unlikely that you would see two, up two Dems making it in where there's a currently a Republican seat. Um, but you could see maybe in a legislative race uh, that happen where essentially Republicans yeah. get boxed out of what would be otherwise a competitive race. Um, or you could see something where like local races, there's a local city council that's having races or if there's local ballot yeah. measures, if there's, you know, a 
uh, anti-vaping ballot measure or soda tax ballot measure or rent control ballot measure, all these kind of things could be really impacted by a real skewed mm-hmm. electorate that's so heavily skewed, skewed Democratic. Mm-hmm. Is there any, uh, is there an argument out there that can be made for proportional, instead of having a winner-take-all system, I'm talking about presidential race now, but, yeah. but instead of having a winner-take-all system, have a proportional distribution of um, of the electoral vote, for example. So, you know, if you have five, if, in, if the 10 general, million, in the general election, yeah. yeah. Is there, uh, it seems just, it seems to me, systemically, it seems favor, more fair, I think, than a lot of other ways of handling it. I think two states now do that, right? I think Maine, I think it's Maine and Iowa. Um, it's congressional district based, but what do you think? I mean, does it work? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I haven't had my presidential electoral college hat on for a while, so I've been thinking about that lately. Um, but, you know, the, I mean, the main push right now is on trying to get rid of the electoral college or trying to nullify yeah. the electoral college by having enough states pass measures that say that they'll award their electors to the national winner. Um, and it's probably something that when we see what we saw last time with somebody winning the popular vote and losing the Electoral College. It's something that because of kind of the self-sorting of voters Mm. um, and kind of the polarization of the electorate that we could see more of where, you know, a Democratic candidate pretty handily wins the coastal states and then loses and wins the majority of votes, but then loses in the Electoral College because of all the uh, electoral votes that are in the flyover states, whether they're proportional or not. I'm sure there's somebody who's done the proportional representation to see who would win, and I'm sure it would be Hillary if you looked at 2016 using proportional representation. Um, But that was, but that would have to pass probably state by state. So if California did it and no one else did, yeah, all it would do is give more votes to the Republican, right? Um, So uh, that business about adding the votes, or excuse me, adding adding the electoral vote in your state to the popular winner. I, they've, I think it's 10 or 11 states in D.C. that have approved that. One, I think Nevada vetoed it. But they actually were coming close to the the 270 magic number they but added, if, and but they I fell think short. It's only Democratic states. I think no Republican states have That's true. It. That's true. So yeah. I think you need a, you need a Republican yeah. state to, to jump on, and so far that has not happened. Well, who knows how things will align, but that would be definitely be an yeah. interesting way to kind of undercut and make the electoral college kind of a thing of the past yeah. which um do you see thing in california now we're talking about uh we there's a likelihood uh that there'll be a, another ballot measure uh next year in 20 in november during the general election um to deal with this 85 the yeah, unemployment there's that yeah, yeah you yeah. got the split rule there's that uh, there's already, I think, an infrastructure, multi-billion dollar infrastructure issue on uh, on November 2020. How does all this, or does it play? And we in could there? have a rent control ballot measure. Yeah, and- I think, yeah, I think uh, Weinstein, 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 I'm not sure pronounce it, I think he's already committed to funding yeah. that, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, there's... Um so we could have a we could have a we could have a ballot in twenty twenty littered with big ballot measures and that's great it's great mm-hmm. for business yeah putting my political data hat on God bless you all uh, I'm sorry for all the mailers and digital ads that people are going to yeah. be getting but those are full um, employment act for reporters yeah. yeah absolutely somebody was saying that. Uh, Michael Trujillo, who's a political consultant in Los Angeles, was saying something about how labor was going to try to essentially blackball any Democrat consultant that tries to do the Lyft, Uber, DoorDash, 
you know, AB5 wow, really, ballot yeah. measure. Um, that kind of an idea of basically blackballing any Democratic consultants got to be music to the ears of like a Rob Stutzman. <laughs> who's like, like, you know, why is <laughs> Yeah, all these Republican consultants are like, yeah, 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 yeah you should do that. Um, Murphy and Stutzman, I can see it right now. Yeah, exactly. Up, you know? um, but that's, that's you know, potential. I mean, when you have a campaign that's starting at $90 million, that's, yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, I worked on the Al Checky campaign. Everybody thought that was a lucrative campaign to yeah. work on. You it was know? 50 million, 48 million. It was, it was pennies. I don't even know. It was, <laughs> doesn't seem like anything now. Um, <coughs> one funny anecdote was after, the, after he ran for governor, his net worth actually went up in the time that he was, I mean, it, it cost him nothing, you know, in real dollars. Yeah. Um, That's right. I remember reading stories. He was actually running on the interest he was collecting on investments or something. You know, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's that's amazing. You say he made he made more when he was not running his own company. That (laughs) tells me a lot (laughs) about Al Chechi. Check key, check key, check key. I believe I remember the T-shirt with a little check check in the key. but yeah, I mean that's just another way that our politics in California is transforming. Um, do they do they interact with each other? Does however people feel about split role does that play a role in how they vote? Elsewhere? No, I mean there has been some talk in the past about campaigns saying like, oh, we need to not have a ballot measure for like the fifteen dollar minimum wage or something like that yeah. on the ballot because we're trying to run for Congress or we're trying to run for the legislature and we don't want to have this noise or this negative impact of having this one issue kind of dominate the conversation. But I think that that's kind of silly. I think that, um, you know, the ballot measures are out there. They're doing their thing. They're spending their money. They're dealing with their own campaigns. And I, I think it is kind of maybe a misread of mm-hmm. the electorate to say, well, if there's a split roll ballot measure on the ballot that now Democrats are going to be having to answer this question, take a position on it, and that's going to potentially hurt them when they're running for office. It's kind of too bank shoddy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, having more money in the California will mean that there's more money in California. The presidential race isn't competitive here anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's not drowning out the competitive yeah, congressional point. races. and. I think the I think that the most of the districts in California in 2020 are basically going to be on lockdown. I think that uh, there's not going to probably be any more Democratic pickups or Republican losses in the congressional races. Those should all still hold pat, probably. And you know, there's well, a lot of interest in the election too. I was just reading the PPIC numbers. Um, they quoted February numbers from the Secretary of State that uh-huh. basically four out of five people that are eligible to vote are registered. That's a lot of that's a lot of voters. Is that well, because there's interest building up, or is that or what you'd expect the DMV? Yeah, no. I mean, the um, yeah, right. voter registration essentially it's at an all time high. Obviously, yeah. Um, uh, by November 2020, we'll probably be at 22 million registered voters. Wow. As a percentage of the eligible voter population, that's as high as it was back in the probably the 60s or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when we had fewer people eligible to vote, to be clear, you know, that was when you didn't have 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds on the voting rolls mm-hmm. that are eligible. Um, the DMV registration uh, has a big, is a big reason that we're at such high registration rate. Um, also, people don't know this, but, um, and I'm having to move right now, so I I'm going to learn it and I'll see if it works for me. But apparently, well, not just apparently, the law is that uh, if you do a change of address and the Secretary of State's office sees that you have a national change of address form filled out and you are a perfect match with a registered voter at that address and you're moving to this address, 
they will send a note to the county registrar that says, John Howard moved from here to here, re-register him at the new address, hmm. period. Then if it's a, not a perfect match, let's just say it says John Howard at one and J. Howard at the other, mm-hmm. something that's just not perfect. Then they send a note to the county registrar and say, that says, hey, we think that John Howard moved. Send a card to his old address. And if you get a reply, a no, you know, mail can't be delivered kind of note back or something like that, or if they respond affirmatively, mm-hmm. then re-register them automatically. This is that, automatic is that up to the discretion of the county registrar? The county registrar is told to do it. I don't think they have a discretionary okay. role of saying, I'm not going to do it or not. But this has been you know, hundreds of thousands of re-registrations of voters that didn't even step into the DMV. Wow. Okay. People don't even know that it's happening, but it's happening. And it has a huge impact when people, when young people move from college back home and from home back to college, mm-hmm. you know, the next year. And, and it, it's causing a ton of this kind of like constant re-registration. We're getting more re-regist- new and re-registrations in off-cycle years, those odd-numbered years huh, wow. now, uh-huh. than we used to get in presidential years. Um, just the constant churn. So. I think it's worked the last few years, I think, if you've moved. You could go back to where you were before and vote in that precinct or vote in that area. Well, that was always true, yeah. So, like, if I move and I don't re-register my new address and I'm still in the voter roll at the old address, I could always go back to that old address and vote in that precinct. Um, Presumably now with same-day registration, you wouldn't do that. You would just go into... A vote center. Would they send the voter County. pamphlet to your old address? Your new yeah, I mean address, that's or? you get your pamphlet, the old address, and so on. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's the that's the process. And that's build the numbers up. I mean that seems to. Um, I don't want yeah, to say no, inflated. I mean it's accurately. It's no, it's accurate. a truer. It's a true true representation of yeah um, the voting population. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. So well, it'll also be interesting to see how many of these people <clears throat> actually show up to vote. Yeah. 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 So. Are you picking up in your numbers motivated turnout? I mean, motivated voters, are, you know, likely voters will actually vote. It's a little early to say, yeah. Um, but yeah, there we'll look to the pollsters yeah. to see like how the numbers compare to prior years in terms of people saying that they're likely to yeah. vote. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, that's going to be interesting to watch. What were you pointing out? Tim was pointing something out here. The uh, so we're getting close on the the. The New, redistricting commission. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, the redistricting commission. Yeah. What What's yeah. going on with that? Now I know they had something like five thousand or six thousand applications. Twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. Um, and Elaine Howell was going through all of them. Absolutely, one at a time. Yeah. And white um, men were only eighteen thousand nine hundred ninety nine of them. Yeah. So <laughs> what's interesting is twenty thousand filled out the first application, which is basically like a yes no yes no kind yeah. of questionnaire to find out if you're eligible. Um, turns out I'm not eligible. Why not? So I don't know. We just. I don't know, a combination of... Mental instability, <laughs> problems with... <laughs> I'm pigeon-toed. <fighting> um, <laughs> uh, no, you know, the having worked for political campaigns... Yeah. So I would think and, partisan would be... And also Jody's work yeah, and sure, Jody's yeah. contributions to political campaigns. Yeah. All that stuff kind of makes me ineligible. Yeah. Um, but... You know, the so editor of Capital Weekly... Uh, I think that sounds like a great... I mean, yeah. you are the editor... You, uh, you run a non-profit... Yeah. Uh, California news and of course personally we're intensely biased but publicly of course yeah. we're amazingly balanced that's how I describe it so speaking of amazingly balanced so the <laughs> the, the, the the applications um, there weren't as many as before they weren't as diverse as before yeah um, you know over 40% of the ballot of the applicants came from Southern California um, they were definitely more male and more white um, 
you know, 60% of the applicants were white, uh, only 16% Latino, which is That's half, basically, basically half of their, their yeah. eligible voter population, yeah, or the eligible right. population for this. Um, and uh, so we saw a large number of Democrats, more than half of them are Democrats, 26% Republicans, which is about right, and 17% independents. Um, but if I remember right, don't <clears throat> just under half have to be Republican? Yeah, so the way it's going to be is they're going to see Republican, Democratic, and NPP commissioners, five, five, and four. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to make up... What's interesting is the way the ballot, the laws says is that the, the parties with the you know largest and second largest um, registrations shall each get five, and then no party preference gets four. But some people have argued that like the Republican Party isn't the second largest anymore. The NPP is second largest. They should get five. I've seen that on Twitter. The people yeah, are so interesting. It is interesting. The Republicans are a little overrepresented on the commission ultimately. Um, so they had their their pool kind of closed now at this twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. They're now going to send out supplemental applications where people are going to do like essay questions, and then those essay question answers however many of those get, end up getting done, mm-hmm. then those get actually reviewed by a panel put together by the state auditor's office to kind of pick through which applicants kind of best meet the criteria sure. mm-hmm. um, that's set out in the commission. Um, so it's the beginning phases of that process. The, they're actually meeting right now. The state auditor's office is meeting at this moment um, as we tape this. And uh, they've been meeting for the last few days with redistricting experts um, Karen McDonald, who did the last redistricting mm-hmm. uh, staff, uh, Justin she's Levitt, she's yeah, she's from Berkeley, one of the Bruce Kane people, uh, uh, Justin Levitt, uh, who's a redistricting expert and legal expert, mm-hmm. uh, and a handful of others have been uh, essentially training the auditors panel on what are some of the things that are necessary skill sets for people to be a good commissioner, mm-hmm. and then they're going to go through the remainder of this process. Um, so it's very early stages of this process, but yeah. we're we're back at it, and um, you know, redistricting is afoot. What's the um, what's the deadline? The drop dead deadline to have this done? It's going to be. They'll be using the census too, so it'll be next year. Yeah. Census so numbers. I mean, the the commission's going to be able to be seated and have meetings and get started before we get the data. Yeah. So the data is going to come in twenty twenty one. Um, and that's maybe like anywhere from February to okay. March or something like that of 2021. Is and when 2022 is then when the elections actually take place. Yeah, so 2022 will be the election date. What's interesting is we were talking at the beginning of this conversation about, you know, the presidential race. Um, if a Democrat wins the presidential race mm-hmm. in 2020, then 2022 is going to be the first mid-year election after a new president of a new party, which, as we all know generally works against that party in power, that Mm -hmm. first election. So this redistricting is going to take these lines in California, which have ultimately turned out to be extremely good for Democrats. It's going to shake them up, and the first implementation of those lines will be in potentially the first mid-year election after a new party of new presidents. So um, it could be very interesting. This cycle of redistricting might be viewed very differently than the last redistricting if Republicans are able to pick up seats after these new lines are drawn. Okay. Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. Tim Foster, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sorry if we went over a little bit. No, no, no. It went by. I didn't even notice it. 
<laughs> and it's it was, John Howard. Uh, go ahead, Tim. I was going to say it's still shorter than Gone with the Wind. Yes, it's shorter than much shorter than Gone with the Wind. It's perfect. It's a perfect amount of time for walking a dog, <laughs> or doing dishes, or something like that. Okay. Now that you've started on the dishes, then you can come back to our podcast. Yeah, so. yeah, I do. Well, at the same time. And uh, this is John Howard from Capital Weekly. We'll see you next time around. Thank you.